Hey everyone, this show was actually recorded live on August 8th. We had uh, Dr. Beth Darnell as our guest, and she discussed, she discussed her stances on the CDC guidelines and such. Interviewing her is Claudia Mirandi, and we kind of started in an awkward spot here because it's a live show, but just listen along. It was a fantastic show. We loved having her on. Welcome to the DAP. Thank you. In 2019, Beth published an article in The Hill against opioid restrictions. She testified in 2018 and 2019 before Congress against forced tapering. And in 2019, she also gave testimonies to the FDA speaking on the harms of forced tapering. And now she's been appointed with some other advocates to the, um, in 2021, they're going to be rewriting the 2016 CDC guidelines, which have caused so much harm and mayhem in the medical community. So Beth, on behalf of the Don't Punish Pain Rally Organization, thank you so much for what you've accomplished so far. Oh, Claudia, thank you so much. Um, it's been uh, quite a rocky road for everyone. And I've, you know, it's just, it's, it's been a privilege to represent this perspective that patients are being harmed by misinformation, poor methods, and uh, I just deeply regret what's happening. And so, you know, these my efforts have just been one small contribution towards helping the people who are suffering um, throughout the country. Yeah, and it's so, because we really are in a dire situation. Beth, how did we get to this place? Why, why were guidelines created to begin with? And we know how the 2016, those guidelines were created in secret. The FDA wanted nothing to do with it. But why were they created to begin with? You know, I wish I had a good answer for you on that. And, you know, all I can tell you, I mean, I just have a little conjecture, but I, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be an authority on um, sort of the history and the development of the guidelines. I think, you know, that piece of it's pretty controversial. Um, I, I think we have to have the right people at the table, um, bringing forward clear evidence and being mindful that when evidence doesn't exist, that um, we have to be considering the full picture of patients and how to protect patients. And, you know, the only thing I can say, and this is just my opinion, is that that full picture wasn't historically, um, it just it wasn't supported. And so what we've seen since that time is efforts to correct some wrongs that have happened societally. Um, but I do believe that there's politics involved with pushing certain narratives out nationally that are harmful to patients. And I find myself on a regular basis attempting to, um, counteract some of these harmful narratives such as that opioids are evil or they're all bad or, you know, anyone can taper and should be tapered. Um, that opioid use is fundamentally, um, you know, an index of addiction. And all of these are untrue. It's reductive. It's harmful. And what's needed is patient-centered pain care. And that's really my philosophy and mission. I'm so happy to hear that. 
I've seen you be treated unfairly on social media. And it just from one tweet, people will come to a conclusion and, and go and they attack. And we spoke before we went live. And I, you know, I reached out to my research person. I said, I really like Beth Darnell. It's so hard to get a feel of what a person is doing on social media, but you really yeah. are pro-patient. You are not an anti-opioid person. You've worked in the clinic for many years. Take me back to your days in the clinic. What was your job? Was it in a pain oh, management boy. center? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, I, I don't talk about my personal experience, but I have some lived experience with pain, but where I started to really work clinically with people was when I was doing my postdoctoral, or I'm sorry, my clinical internship at the VA in Tucson, and veterans have a lot of chronic pain issues, and so that's really where I got my first training. Then I did a postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins University, where I was working with people who had catastrophic burns, spinal cord injury, amputation, and major medical events that required inpatient rehabilitation. And the one commonality there was pain. So from my postdoctoral internship, I took my first faculty position at Oregon Health and Science University as a pain psychologist in the pain clinic. And that was in like the end of like 2005. Um, and so that's what I was working with was people in the pain clinic, you know. Um, so you've seen pain. You're not, a, you're not a stranger to this, contrary to what people believe. You're not sitting behind a desk yeah. and just writing reports and, you know, you know working yeah, no. on... So you've worked in the trenches, so you know the pain and suffering yeah. that's happening. Oh, yeah, more than 15 years, honestly, and um, I was so deeply involved in the pain community and pain treatment in Oregon, so um, it ended up rising to the be the president of the Pain Society of Oregon in 2012, and this was three chapters throughout Oregon. This is um, a group that's uh, interprofessional and focused on pain education, pain advocacy, and um, pain treatment, so that's that's where my heart is, to be honest. I mean, I got into the field to work with people, you know, I mean, you know, that's, and that's actually my love. Um, but in 2017, it came down to making hard choices about where I could have the biggest impact and I can have more impact working at, at a higher level rather than working with people one-on-one. -on -one. And, and I, I got to tell you, it's a, I, I don't like that. I mean, I, I, you know, if I could do both, I would, it, was sort of a, it was a hard choice to make to pull myself out of clinic. Okay. So, which is understandable. Um, you know, so I, I know there's um, a lot of controversy surrounding a term pain catastrophizing. And I wasn't familiar with this term. And I know that term has been attached to you just from what I've seen. Yeah. What is pain? Yeah. And I don't now that I've spoken with you. Um, yeah, I receive it very differently than when I first saw, because when I first saw pain catastrophizing, I said, oh my God, as a person who's lived with severe Crohn's disease in the hospital, I feel like that term makes me sound like a lunatic when I go in the hospital. I'm like, my pain, yeah. my pain. What is, tell me about pain catastrophizing and why it's been um, taken out of context. 
Yeah. So, well, let me just say right off the bat, the term is horrible. Um, and I don't know really anybody who likes the term other than I will occasionally hear people say, pain catastrophizing, I do that. You know, they it, it somehow resonates with some people, but I think on balance, the majority of people and the majority of clinicians um, cannot stand the term. So the term um, was never meant to be really used sort of publicly or in session. It was developed many decades ago and in, in what didn't even start out in the pain world. It was really um, in the psychological literature describing depression. And then it was tr- like a lot of things, you know, we take some of these foundational principles and they get translated into different areas. And so it, it was meant to be sort of an, an index of um, how a person is thinking and feeling in different situations. And then it got applied to pain in 1983 was when it was sort of first translated into the pain world. And and so even the person who translated into the pain world, um, he, he this is Dr. Frank Keith, and he says, you know, it was never meant to be used um, in clinic or with people. It is just a term to describe pain coping, pain coping. And I think, unfortunately, you know, these terms that get started and now we have measures that are named after the term and they've been in place for decades. So at the point at which I start studying this thing, pain coping, because my doctoral degree is in clinical psychology. So I'm necessarily very interested in in pain coping and how can we support people who have pain. This ended up being a very big area of focus for me because it turns out to be highly treatable. And if we don't address it, it can worsen situations. And so, uh, look, I'm our time on earth is short. And I was interested in focusing on the kind of the high dollar items that where, you know, we could help people. This ended up being one of them. And regrettably, um, you know, the this is the term that's used in, in the scientific literature. It's the name of the measures. Um, so, and in the age of social media, you know, I end up doing a lot of interviews and, and getting asked to talk about my research. And so I have to use a term to describe what we're studying. And so I understand um, why the term is hated. People feel blamed. They, It's been just like the 2016 CDC guidelines. This term has been used against some people. And I hear that message. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, in this age of social media and information where everyone has access um, to, you know, articles and and what have you, we we have to revise this. And so um, in in working with some patient advocates um, over the past year and a half, um, Andrea Anderson being one of the key leaders, we kept talking about what what can we do to right a wrong? I mean, yeah, it was created 40 years ago, but can we can we do something that would help alleviate suffering for patients and to help them feel heard and understood and respected? And so that's the effort that we're co-leading right now. It's an international study um, and effort where we're hoping to revise um, this term so that we have patient 
patient-centered language, and we're collating patients' voices on this matter. It's, it's an in-progress effort. Thanks for that explanation, because people like, well, Beth Darnell coined that term. I said, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. well, ask her about it. So this is, we, we see what happens with the misinformation circulating on social media. But you know, Beth, there seems to be a lot of labels. We see complex, complex persistent opioid dependency. Um, there's just so many labels, it seems, with that are yeah. thrown at the pain community. And I work, and yep. I mentioned I work in the addictions community. I don't feel like my, um, the people in the addiction community are getting these labels thrown so frequently. It's like everything is th the labels. And it seems like the women yeah. get the short end of the stick all the time with the labels. It seems like where, um, you know, women are presenting in the emergency room 600 times more than the men. Yeah. What, what, what gives with the, with the attack on women in pain? Well, you know, I, boy, this is, I mean, how many, how many centuries do we have to go back to talk about? And we're, still, um, and we're in the same place, Beth. We've not advanced. And, and we are. No, you're right. You're right. And, you know, and I just have to say, as women, we suffer disproportionately from pain, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. I mean, we're much more likely to experience pain, to have it be of greater severity, to last of longer duration. There are many more pain conditions that are specific to women, and women are more likely to seek treatment from the medical community. And for that reason, we are more exposed to various biases and to suffer negative consequences of those biases. So none of this is unique to women. It's just that we suffer the consequences disproportionately um, relative to men. And that's in dispute. I mean, I can provide you with numerous studies that support that fact. Sure. Um, so an, a question that I'm seeing on Facebook right now is, and I don't, I'm going to jump around here. So just bear with me. Yeah. Why do we okay. have, um, why is the government allowing addiction doctors to shape opioid prescribing policy? It seems like pain management doctors have no seat at the table when it comes to policy. And it seems like the anti-opioid crusaders shatterproof Judy Rumler, people who have lost um, loved ones to overdoses prop. It seems like they had the seat at the table and they wrote those 2016 CDC guidelines. Why is this happening? Yeah. Um, well, I can't speak about any one individual, but I myself have been dismayed at the lack of representation of um, the field of pain medicine um, over the past few years. And I am incredibly impressed with the American Medical Association and their advocacy efforts and really bringing forward the clear need to restore physician autonomy in prescribing for pain um, because the physician has the relationship with the patient and every patient is different and only the physician can determine that. So, um, you know, we, we need that. We need that desperately. We need more 
of the field of pain medicine at the table steering the conversation. Uh, you know, I'll say, you know, addiction is an important topic and that should be the focus for efforts on the topic of addiction. But when we're talking about pain, we need more trained pain professionals at the table. You know, do you think more pain management people aren't participating because they're fearful and they don't want to be vocal? Or is it just that they've not been invited to participate? You know, so of course I'm speculating and, and I, I actually have no clear knowledge, but I, my guess is that it's both. It, you know, it's, it's, it's twofold. I mean, look, you know, we've had two major pain societies um, in the United States, professional pain organizations were obliterated in the last year. We have other, you know, the last remaining pain organization um, similarly under attack. We've had the International Association for the Study of Pain under attack all about opioid issues. So it's not just patients that are experiencing the fallout from this, the entire field of pain medicine has experienced fallout. And it's, it's hard to know which moves to make because, you know, you may be facing litigation. You may or may not even be able to talk about a certain topic or in certain ways. And I'm just grateful that the American Medical Association has stood up and they are actively fighting for physician autonomy and for patient rights. And uh, it's an incredible organization. Yeah, it seems like, you know, they they issued a 17-page letter why these CDC guidelines need to be rewritten, clarified, what, what are the words? So that really gave the pain community um, a sliver of hope, uh, knowing that the AMA, they are vehemently opposed to these horrible horrible guidelines, which, um, you know, it seems like these guidelines, when they were created, they folk, they, they lumped pain patients and addicts together. And I think that's why there's such, um, there's so much hate with the two communities. You know, it's the pain patients versus the addicts and the pain patients feel like, look, I'm a legitimate chronic pain patient. I can't get medication. Why does an addict right. get to walk into a center, get Suboxone, not get urine drug tested, yeah. not be subjected to these insane um, contracts? By the way, there's a nicotine contract that I just saw recently where, you know, and not only that, these the, the, the addicts no longer, they don't have to, I know the anti-opioid crusaders, they're fighting for, look, no, they don't have to participate in therapy. They just get their medication, they walk in and out. But the pain patient, oh my God, this community is subjected to scrutiny, bias. Oh, yeah. It's just a disgusting violent act. So, no, you know, I why, agree. Why, are lumped, why are we lumped in together, Beth? Pa- patients uh, and addicts. I got to tell you, it's a million dollar question, but I, I believe that it extends well beyond the CDC guidelines. I think that there's been um, a political uh, agenda to conflate the two issues. And, um, you know, there are people who are benefiting from the conflation. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not here to get into details and, you know, like I just yeah. can't, but I, I personally believe that, you know, that there has been a, a willful and, and deliberate effort in that direction because it is not based on 
evidence. And I think that when we look at that, and we have to recognize that studies don't support it, that the evidence doesn't support it, then we have to ask, you know, we have to ask what's the political motivation for this. And it's been, you know, it's been heartbreaking to see a population of individuals who are already suffering be subjected to this type of treatment within a system that you know, theoretically is designed to care. And, and I think, you know, it's just been too much for some people to bear. And it's, it's been, it's been unbelievable. So I, I am invested in, in really bringing, helping do my part to help bring the focus back to people with pain and focusing on pain treatment. And, you know, that's, that's really, that's really the bottom line. Well, it's so reassuring to hear these words from you, Beth, because a lot of these people, they live, it's not even a day by day process. The people that we advocate for, they're living hour by hour. And some are just yeah. prescribed a very small dose of medication. And I want to talk to you about the tapering issue because um, it's yeah. out there. I, we have to talk about the elephant in the room because people said, well, Beth Darnell is a proponent of um, willful tapering and, you know, forced tapering. So yeah. and now that yeah. I've had a discussion with you, there's zero truth to that statement because there are people that wanted to come off of their pain medication and those people seeked you out for your help. Yeah, you know, this, um, my focus on this area got started in Oregon when I was there between 2005 and 2000, and really the years between 2005 and 2010. And it's almost impossible to believe today, but at that time, um, you know, the patients were coming to me asking for help getting off of opioids or reducing their use of opioids. And they were saying the doctor prescribed it. They didn't give me a plan for tapering. You know, they were having some issues related to it, whatever. It's individual. Um, but I started helping people with that. And I ended up writing a book so that for people who wanted to reduce their opioid use, they would have a roadmap for doing that. But I have never said that everyone should come off opioids. I'm not even invested in whether people take medication or not. I mean, it's so individual. Who am I to say or to judge? But if you need opioids, I'm invested in you having access to them. And if you, for whatever reason, want to take less medication or at least try to do so, I can help you with that too. But I'm vehemently against forced opioid tapering. And I mean, this really needs to be a patient decision and it needs to be with patient consent and, and working with the individual. And what I realized was nobody had methods for that. Nobody had studied it. So in 2018, we published the first study on voluntary opioid reduction. And what's important for people to know is that we invited people to join our program where we would very slowly reduce their opioid dose at their pace um, and they could stop it at any time. They could, 
get out of the study anytime. And if they needed more opioids, we would increase them. So it was not unidirectional. And what we found at the end of the study was that some people actually went up on their opioids. And that is incredibly important information. And I'm a firm believer that we should not be conducting unidirectional opioids. I think that if people want to try to reduce their doses, there's a clear way to do it where you are most likely to get the best result. But if you start tapering and you're having problems, well, go back up. You know, not not everyone can or should reduce their opioids. Um, so those are kind of, you know, those You've are the made me so happy. You've made me so happy saying what you just said. There's a huge sigh of relief in the pain community after those words were just said, because that is such an important, if you, if you're taking people down on their opioids and it's not working, they should be able to go back up. And yes, yes. Yeah. And, you know, and what I'll say about that is that, you know, this is what bothers me so much about this new term, the complex persistent dependence or opioid dependence is that, you know, at the core of this term that's being floated is the idea that you should taper people. And if they don't taper easily, that this label is applicable. And uh, there's, first of all, there's no evidence for that. Um, there's no evidence to support it. And my belief is that if people don't taper easily, then that's on us. Either we're not doing the taper the right way or that person needs to be on their medication. Tapering isn't right for them, but we shouldn't throw a label on and call it something on the continuum of addiction. Um, it's There is no data to support that, and it's just further insult to the injury that people have been subjected to. Right. And, and you know, the term hyperalgesia, I laugh when I say that term, because I think you have a better chance of being bit by a monkey in your kitchen than actually developing hyperalgesia. But I guess it's a thing. Let's talk about that because a lot of times Dr. Feldman and I are called in to advocate and the doctor will tell the patient, well, you've asked for an increase in your medication and I think you've developed hyperalgesia because you need more medication. And I'm thinking, yeah. I don't even understand where that makes sense. The patient's in pain. So you think by taking the patient off all their medication, it's going to help their hyperalgesia? Let's talk about this horrible misused term. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I wish there were um, a, a stronger evidence base for it. And it, it is, you know, somewhat of a controversial term, the idea that if you use opioids over time, it could make you more sensitive um, to pain. Um, the thing to know is that it's, you know, it's so individual. And so I, I really dislike painting um, with a broad brush. What we know from our tapering research is that, you know, some, for the majority of people, and let me just give you a caveat here. This is a small study. We're talking about 51 people. So 
big grain of salt here. But for the people who voluntarily um, partnered with us to slowly reduce their opioids, a lot of people did their pain was just constant. It didn't change after four months, but some people had their pain improve and some people had their pain worsen. And I just think it's important for us to appreciate that there's a variable response. So do I think that this thing called hyperalgesia is real? For some people, undoubtedly, but that doesn't mean that it's true for everybody. And it's not true for everybody who needs more medication either. So I think the problem is, is that, you know, one study gets published or one term is used, and it just starts getting blanket applied to a population. And that's unfair. Yeah, well, that's the country we live in. And a knee jerk effort, right? This a knee jerk response. Yeah. That's what happens with every, whether it's guns, whether it's pain medication. Now we're seeing a big turn. Um, you know, the anti-opioid crusaders, they're really, they've really made out on the opioid crisis. We have traced well over $70 million back to um, the, the, the anti-opioid zealots. These people are making mucho dinero, profiting yeah. off of sick people. Think about all the yeah. money that's made off of not only, so the, the population that we're talking about, myself included, we're sick. Well, when you throw in um, people making money off our illness, my God, that's just a disgusting oh, yeah. vile attack on the disabled oh. community. And, you know, we've had, we've been forced to learn these crazy terms, you know, patient-centered, multidisciplinary approach, hyperalgesia, pseudoscience. Ugh, it's, it's, yeah. it's really frustrating. And, you know, we're being told to practice pain acceptance, that we should stop focusing on pain and that pain relief should be the goal. But when you're living with an illness, most, a lot of people just panic about just driving yeah. to their doctor's appointment there oh, yeah. with anxiety. Let's talk about pain acceptance because that's another term where it's yeah. it's crazy to me because when I'm passing a kidney stone and I'm having a bowel obstruction at the same time, I'm not thinking about pain acceptance. I'm thinking about a morphine pump. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, no, what absolutely. I know, and I have to tell you, it's another term um, that I I dislike. Fortunately, I haven't been associated with that one because <laughs> then I would be associated with two bad terms. Sure. Um, but I, I agree with you because I, I think the term itself um, sends the wrong message, and then there's an immediate resistance to it. Whereas, you know, at its core, um, you know, there's there's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, um, which, you know, frankly, a, a different label would be better. And and at the and at the heart of these therapies, what um, what is being taught and put forward is a variety of different skills to help gain um, help gain control over our thoughts and our emotions while under some extremely difficult circumstances. And so 
look, this is a human truism. We have many challenges in life. If you have medical conditions and the pain, and now you're dealing with the medical system and the doctors and the stigma, you have more challenges than than any human should deal with. And when we are under distress, under duress, and experiencing extreme distress about it, it's it's going to amplify all of that. So so here's the careful distinction. It doesn't mean that you know it, because you would learn skills to help you soothe yourself in the moment. It doesn't mean it's your fault. It doesn't mean any of it's your fault or that you're making it up or that pain isn't real. It simply is recognizing that, uh, you know, none of us are born with this skill set. And, and so we have to learn them. I had to learn this skill set. All of us do. And it can be incredibly valuable for navigating challenges, which are compounding. Um, and, you know, let's face it. I mean, it's needed more than ever today. What I want to be sure that everyone hears is that it's not an either or proposition. It's not, you should have, you know, these pain regulation skills or medication. I, I'm strongly advocating for the full toolkit to be available to everyone. And it's up to the patient and the doctor to have the conversation about what medications will be used. I'm not here to be involved in that. But I do believe that every single person should have access to these basic um, coping tools. Because look, if we're not providing people access to that, we're, we're failing in our jobs. Right. And you know, it's such a shame because we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are more fearful. Well, I know the pain community, we, we really dissuade patients from going to the emergency room only because chances are you're going to be treated like a dog. Uh, and But most people yeah. go to the emergency room because they're in pain. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing an influx of people having heart attacks in the pain community and just not, you know, because their pain has, I can't say poorly managed, it's not managed at all. And now people yeah. are saying no to surgeries and they're saying no to the emergency room. And we have what, 30, 40 million pain sufferers. We've got baby boomers, but now we're seeing it trickle like just into the acute injury where people are being um, you know, they're having double mastectomies and they're not receiving yeah. pain medication. How did it, you know, it got so bad that yep. this is yep. really yep. scary for our country. I know. My, my biggest concern is this reductive focus on limits. And when we reductively focus on limits, like one day's supply after surgery or whatever it is, when we focus on these reductive limits, we're no longer treating the person. It is like legislated medicine and it fails to account for the individual differences. And what we desperately need in this country is to get back to actual medical care, patient-centered pain care, and focusing on the person. We do not treat averages and we don't treat opioids. We treat people. And what does that person need and how can we best help that person? Um, so I, I am, I'm concerned as well, Claudia. 
Well, so there's some good news. You have been appointed to the um, the workshop, and you're going to help create some new guidelines. And so, tell me about this process as much as you can. I don't know if there's if you have to be silent. Yeah. Well, you know, I I don't have um too much information to share at this stage because I'm still sort of learning myself. But um, I worked with some of the um, people from CDC last year on helping review and edit the uh, what ended up being the 2019 tapering guidance. And um, I, I was really honored to be asked and was very pleased to recommend some patient-centered language and methods be included in that document. And um, so I can only imagine that from that relationship um, and maybe some of my other publications focusing on patient-centeredness, I was invited to be on the CDC opioid work group and, um, and, and they know who I am and what I advocate for. And I'm pretty vocal and have put it out there where I stand on these issues and and they invited me. So that communicates to me that they're um, receptive to this perspective of, of careful focus on patient protections. And the only thing I know is that the majority of the work is going to happen outside of these public meetings. Um, we'll be meeting several times a year and the opioid work group will make recommendations um and so there's uh that that's the extent of my knowledge at this at this time we'll review evidence and and make recommendations for shaping the document and will there be a point in time where you'll all meet together in person or is this just going to be done remotely you know it's it's a question i have myself um frankly i i prefer to meet in person of course now with yeah. the pandemic and everything it's like a non-issue but I, I would love for that to be the case where we could you know really meet and, and work in the same room but we we shall see it it hasn't been a part of the conversation as yet yeah I mean it just makes more sense to we're talking with millions and millions of people's lives I don't like this whole remote thing I we meet we, yeah, I want to look yeah. people in the eye when I'm when we're yeah. talking about policy because this country cannot afford to have any more bad policy because it, yeah. I feel like bad policy um, equals prohibition equals uh, the pain patient death movement and that's where we are. Right. I know, right? Where you know when we heard that the guidelines were going to be rewritten, you know, we had the same question: Is this going to be done in 2021? Will it be completed? Do you have any information? Will will this be a project that will be done in 2021? You know, um, I in in 100% honesty, I know about as much as you do. Um, you know, they onboarded us publicly at the last meeting, but we really haven't get, been given more information than what you saw in that slide deck, and we haven't even met yet. Um, so I, I honestly don't know, but what I heard in that meeting was that um, they're planning on putting forward a revision in 2021. So um, we shall see. It, it does seem like it's right around the corner, but... Um, We'll see what they have in mind. And, and we do have some, there is some, you know, victory in this because prop is not a part 
of these guidelines, whereas Prop pretty much bought and paid for the other guidelines. You don't have to comment because I don't want to put you in a situation. So for the people that are tuning in, Andrew Kolodny, Jane Ballantyne, and the whole bunch of the Motley crew, they do not have anything to do with these guidelines. You know, Beth, I don't think the government took into consideration that advocates were going to be so vocal and that we were going to do so much research. And that's exactly what some really great advocates have done. I know my researcher, uh, Bev, is, Bev Schechtman, is based out of North Carolina, and she actually went back to 2005 with uh, the anti-opioid crusaders, and she created a timeline, and she brought us all the way up to the present. But I, I don't think the government took into consideration the pain community is going to be vocal, and the pain community is going to fight back. Where I think we failed, Beth, and I think you'll agree, is we're still not collaborating. Um, we're yeah. still, there's a lot of bickering in this community. And um, I've been the target. You're a target. I know Vanilla Singh is. And we really need to all be on the same playing field. But I feel like it's just the girls fighting and there's just not a lot <laughs> of men fighting with us. Why do you think that is? Boy, you know, it, it, it is interesting. I, I have noticed a, a lot of women at the forefront in in recent, um, you know, in recent years, honestly, fighting. I, I do recognize that there are a lot of male colleagues who are out fighting the fight, at, at least as vociferously. You know, look, I'm, I'm biased because I'm a woman and this is my experience, but I, I do think that when it comes to criticism, women get more criticism than men. And it's, you know, I, it would take us a whole two or three other podcasts to unpack that. Um, I do think that it is important for us to come together, unify around mission, and so that we can all be most effective. I don't think we have to agree with each other on every single issue, but I do think that if we are in disagreement and if we're going to put forward statements publicly that each and every one of us bears an ethical obligation to be sure that that statement is factual and not just rumor. And that would be, you know, I, I think that each and every one of us as a human being bears that responsibility so that we're not unwittingly discrediting people who, you know, may be allies and advocates. And, you know, it's just, I think that social media is a blessing because it's, it's brought forward our message in key ways and we have a shared voice, but it's also been a curse and that disinformation can spread rapidly. And that's not, that's not a good thing. Right, right. We really have to. And I, I said this, I say this to everybody I talk with, all of my doctors, I said, you know what, we have to make opioids pretty, because that's all we have at this point. And that sounds like a shallow statement. But the media has created the life of a pain patient, and it's completely untrue. The media is driving this false narrative surrounding the safety and efficacy of opioids. And we have to put our best foot forward um, especially on social media, because there's so many journalists watching 
Um, and you know, it is a blessing and a curse. I started with five members. I have over 10,000, a chapter in Australia, the UK, Canada, and it's, this all happened because of social media. So if you're listening, it's so important to collaborate, to support, especially because this is 70% women involved in this. And we really have to empower one another, but there's always going to be bad actors, um, you know, plaguing the country with more false information. So listen, folks, if you see it on social media, keep it moving. Don't engage in any nonsense. Um, If you're looking for a fight, you're not going to get one. And if we can all focus, we could probably be in a good place. Now, a super important question. I know I get asked this daily. How People say, Claudia, how can I advocate for myself? So Beth, as a psychologist who worked in a pain management clinic, when a person yeah. is walking into their doctor's office and they can hear their heart pounding in their ear, how can these yeah. people advocate for themselves? Yeah, you know, it's a really great question. And, and what I used to say to people was, you know, you, you have to have a good relationship with your doctor and trust your doctor and, and be able to be honest with your doctor. And if you can't, you need to get a new doctor. Um, and of course, we laugh now because people don't have the luxury of having a choice. Um, you know, it's just so hard to find somebody who will prescribe at all. Um, so, so if we step outside of the opioid issue, and if we just talk about pain care, my words hold true. You know, the quality of the relationship is critical. And if you don't feel like your doctor has your back and is listening and, and providing you good care, then to the extent that you have the option of seeking out an alternative, um, do so. For people who are taking opioids, it's much more complex. Of course, the choices um, aren't there. And unfortunately, it, it can create some artificial circumstances where, you know, you may feel like, well, I can't share certain, you know, aspects of my life or my experience because I'm worried about how I will be perceived. And so I, I guess what I want to say is I just want to honor that truth and I don't have any kind of a quick fix for that. Um, I do think it's important for people to, you know, document their questions and to be able to come in and be focused with their doctor to the extent that they can. Um, But there are so many very real issues facing people in the medical realm that almost anything I would say is going to, it's just going to ring hollow. You know, it's like, I can't get my prescription filled and I can't even, you know, I have to pee in a cup and, and they're asking me about this, that, and the other. And it's like, you know, I, I guess, you know, just with my last couple of breaths, I just want to acknowledge the, the hardship um, with pain care today. Yeah, what a shame. You know, so many women contact me and say, Claudia, I was raped as a child. And um, I, I can't be honest with my doctor because I know somebody who was honest with their doctor and their doctor said, well, I can't prescribe to you because you're more at risk of becoming an addict. Yeah. And I said, yeah. how scary. We can't be honest with our doctors, but if you're 
um, a survivor of a trauma, you don't have a problem yeah. getting suboxone at an addiction facility. You don't have to sign um, a nicotine contract to get um, you know, access to the medication that you need to treat your illness. Yet right. the disabled community, the legitimate chronic pain sufferers, it's a struggle every day, every four weeks. The drive, yeah. you know, you know, Beth, we've got people driving 600 miles just to find the doctor. They're 400 to get their script filled, which by the way, um, we, we, we have been successful. Um, 48 hours ago, uh, my partner, Dr. Fellman, myself, the Don't Punish Pain Rally Organization, um, a lawsuit has been filed, class action lawsuit has been filed against both Walgreens and CVS for denying to fill people's scripts. And I really think that this lawsuit will put the plight of the pain patient on the map because this country seems to only respond to money, litigation, power, yeah. and litigation yeah. they shall have because we're not going to, we're not going to take this another day. And it's, it's so important to, um, you know, obviously I organize protest for a living and I tell people get out and protest, you know, practice safe, safe yeah. distance, social distancing, because these guidelines are going to be rewritten and you're a part of it. And we're, I'm grateful that you're a part of it. I'm grateful that, um, you're a voice for the patient. Um, and same with vanilla Kate Nicholson, um, more women, where are the where are the dudes, Beth? Huh? <laughs> hey, hey, we're right here. We're right here. I mean, we're, we're where here. are the dudes? I feel like I feel like women. We have to carry the brunt of everything. You know, before I got on this with Beth, I was running around cooking, cleaning, making a deal with um, somebody to do marketing training. I was like, where are the dudes? I'm I'm just like I I want to wake up one day and there's going to be ten pain management doctors and you know what. We're going to be more active. We're going to take a part of this because we have a lot on our plate. And you know, Beth, I know it wasn't easy for you. You flew out to Oregon and you, you know, you're in the, you're at Stanford and I'm sure that wasn't easy because you were defying people when you think about it, really it was, it was defying what Oregon wanted and you showed up and you fighted against what they wanted. And I applaud you for that because you had to go back to Stanford and you had to go back to work. So, you know, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, thank here's you. our applause. Um, and I, it doesn't, I don't think we have any phone calls coming in. I'm just scrolling in. Um, a lot of people are saying they're having difficulty and they're on hospice. And I don't know. Yeah. Um, so you, you hear the same stories that I hear, Beth, and uh -huh. Uh -huh. Do, when people call you and ask you, um, what can, what can I say to my pain management doctor today? Um, your advice is just, you know, be honest or try to find oh, another doctor. I don't. Yeah, I know. You know, so, so there's nothing that I can really say just sort of you know, now that's going to be applicable to everyone. But I do think that if you have somebody, a professional that you, where you can provide a few details and um, somebody who can help you walk through the circumstances and advise, that's, that's most beneficial. So I do have people reach out to me and, and they'll ask me certain 
questions about how to navigate a situation. And sometimes I can help and sometimes I can't. I mean, again, you know, it can come down to how much choice does a person have? I mean, that's heartbreaking to me that a person couldn't reveal a history of trauma out of fear that that information will be used against them to withhold needed pain treatment. I mean, it's just, it's sort of unconscionable. So we're dealing with different circumstances and in a different climate than I think ever before. And that, again, makes it very difficult to give uh, just blanket advice. Yeah. Uh, we got a caller. We got a caller. Excuse me. I just want to pause you just for a second. We have a caller here. If you have music playing in the background, um, can you turn it down? I, I think we hear something there. But do you have a question for Claudia or Beth today? Yes, I do. I, just for clarification, and she may not know this answer, but I want to ask, is it the government's agenda to put pain patients on buprenorphine or is this generated from outside influences? Thank you for your call. Wow, it's um, that's a great question, and um, it I'm I'm definitely not the authority to answer the question. Um, I I have observed a, a strong push in the direction of buprenorphine, um, and this is just. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Okay, good. Sorry, I had to, my headset died. Um, my personal opinion is that there's um, too much of a focus on buprenorphine. I find myself very concerned about a push of just rotating everyone onto buprenorphine. I, I don't see the evidence for that as a justification for it. If a person has addiction, that's a separate conversation. Fine. Um, but I have yet to see clear evidence or justification for it being pushed um, so forcefully into the realm of pain treatment. Um, and I, I would just be speculating on the reasons why that's happening. Um, I, I think, you know, what I see is a lot of narrative around safety, but that doesn't make sense to me because, we're talking about people who had very low risk to begin with, and they don't need these measures of safety. And I, so I will just say that I think it's, it's premature. I think that there are some political, you know, factions at play. And well, it's something that I'm sort of actively um, speaking out against. Yeah, it's, it's just money. It's driven by money. It's always money. You know, our researcher... Yeah. Um, you know, these, the, the anti, these crusaders, they have legislation in 16 states where they only want buprenorphine prescribed for both acute and chronic pain. And, you know, these zealots, they receive, I, I mean, millions and millions of dollars from pharmaceutical companies. Then they have the yep. millions to pay their lobbyists and they have the millions to, you know, to fly, to be present everywhere. But 16 states buprenorphine only for both acute and chronic pain. Now we've got palliative care teams showing up post-op after um, people have these very, very long surgeries and they want to prescribe buprenorphine for post-op. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know, Beth, if you're on Suboxone, which a lot of these people have already been placed on, they can't have surgery unless they come off of it. 
because right. no other medication will work. Their receptors are filled up with bup. There's yep, yep. I know, and I, yeah, and I did hear recently about um, you know some efforts um, wanting anyone who had been taking opioids while being hospitalized that they would be discharged with buprenorphine, and I just I find it absolutely perplexing that there's such a fascination with this different pharmaceutical. I, I honestly don't understand it. The evidence doesn't support it. Um, I, I am I as stumped as the rest of you, and I agree that I, it's hard for me to, to get my head around it other than there being some political slash commercial interests at play. What a shame. There's another question. Uh, uh, Beth, what do you think you're up against as part of the opioid, uh, as part of the opioid work group to change the direction of pain management back to patient-centered care? That's a question from um, Martha. Um, yeah, it's a good question, Martha. I, I don't have a sense of what... Um, what you're up against yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't have a sense of what the climate will be like, but I, 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 I want to just underscore that I, I was so pleased to be asked, and there's other... Um, you know, just very patient-centered um, group members now on, Kate Nicholson, Travis Ryder, um, Mark Wallace is a pain physician who's on the opioid work group. And I just feel like there's, it's such a great sign that there is a shift in the composition and the values and, and philosophies. And I think it's a very positive signal that the CDC is focusing on patient-centeredness and, and inclusivity. And, and I, I believe, this is just my opinion, but I really believe that the CDC is invested in not replaying some of those mistakes and wanting to do this in, in the right way. And so um, I, I, I feel hopeful about it. I, I, I'm thrilled to be there because I, I'm very vocal and um, I will, I will make my opinions and um, position heard. Good. You're going to make them known. Another question. Beth, do you think one day people will be able to take benzos and opioids again? Because most people were forced to choose, um, you know, do you want to live a life without yeah. pain or a life without anxiety? How cruel is that? I mean, that's probably yeah. one of the cruelest. Right, right. Well, I think it all comes down to whether a physician is is willing to prescribe and um, withstand scrutiny, whether that's from their organization or, you know, from the state or from the DE, whatever it is, whoever is, you know, the oversight committee. I think it comes down to the individual prescriber and their willingness Um you know, and I, I, I wish, I wish I could say anything more or different than that. Right. I, you know, Dan Laird, um, he's an attorney and a doctor and he has his patients for patients that are on both. And he's been very, you know, he's been vocal about it. He has patients sign waivers and, you know, the doctors who are yeah. prescribing, we tell doctor, put out a waiver, have the patient sign it. But there's no, um, that doesn't mean the DEA is not going to raid you. The DEA will probably raid you and it'll just be a waiver, but um, it can't hurt and it can save a person's life. 
because it's just another attack. This community has been attacked from every angle. Um, I don't think we have any callers. Tim and Dave, are we good on calls and questions? Um, yeah, we have some questions in the, uh, in the chat here. Um, and, and I'm actually, I've been going back and forth between here and Twitter on the live show and trying to get some, um, get some activity going there. Uh, I do have this, I think her name is, uh, Ariane, 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 Ariane. Um, she's on, she's on Twitter right now and, and she's asking for, uh, the doctor to, if she's willing to say that, uh, you know, opiate class medicines are safe and effective for most people when taken responsibly. Um, that's the only thing she's, she says she believes, I think this is a person that is very, you know, obviously very critical of, uh, of some of maybe some things she misunderstands about your stance on oh. this. So would you, yeah. would you be willing to, uh, you know, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, the, the safety issue is really dependent on the individual, but if someone is prescribed opioids and they're taking opioids as prescribed and the patient says they're helping, then 100% the person should have access to those medications. And Claudia, chime in if I if I'm not quite getting at the question. Well, I think um, Ariane just wanted um, clarification that you do believe um, opioids, when taken as prescribed and stored correctly, yeah. are safe. And and you just you just reiterated that yes, you do believe um, if the doctor is prescribing and the patient is you know, taking them responsibly, then they're safe. Um, what's your take about, uh, the urine drug screen? The, 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 you know, I mean, these are prone to error. Now that I'm working with doctors, we know it can be an absolute nightmare with the urine drug screen. Do you think they're necessary? I mean, oh, have they, have they cut down on overdosing? Probably not. You know, I think the original, the reason we had this urine drug screen is if you went in the emergency room and you were unresponsive, they could do a blood test to see what was in your system. But now they're weaponized and some doctors are making a fortune performing these on people. But Beth, overdosing is up while prescribing is down. I don't think those urine drug screens are good tools after all. What do you think? No, I don't think so either. I, I really don't. I mean, it's imperfect. And, it, you know, if I if I were subjected to urine drug screens, I'd be highly resentful. I'm just declaring that honestly. It would, it would not go over well with me. Um, and I understand that, you know, for instance, like at our pain clinic, you know, some doctors need to check that box to demonstrate to the state of California that they that they're doing due diligence. So I I can see all sides. Would I prefer a world where they didn't have to check that box a hundred percent? and especially the costs that get passed down to the patient. I think that's unconscionable. Um, so it's it's not a good system, but right now, you know, Doctors are so concerned with having to jump through hoops to protect their license that you know this is this is what's this is what's at hand. What a shame! What a shame for this country where, you know, I work with these doctors and they and I said well, it's mu it must be crowded in your room. You've, you're writing. You've got yourself there, the patient, and you're looking over your head at a DEA agent. And this wasn't. This yeah. is why. I don't think people are signing up to be doctors. 
And I see oh, doctors retiring earlier. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's like, so we have like state PDMPs and people will check those records and you have urine drug screens. And, and I, you know, I want to say that, you know, for it, it, there's a fraction of people where you can actually save lives with some of these measures because you identify someone who really needs a different care pathway. You know, this may be somebody who really and truly needs to be steered towards addiction medicine. But I think what we have in place are a lot of systems designed to protect, you know, from, you know, this, this smaller fraction of the population. And what it's doing is creating barriers to care for people with pain. And so that's, that's really the difficulty here is that we have this artificial dichotomy where to help one fraction of the population, the other, you know, part of the population should suffer. And we need to do a much better job of treating pain and addressing access to care for people who have pain. You know, it's like the government wants perfection with pain management, and there'll never be perfection in pain management. And um, unfortunately, there's zero room for error. And as a prescriber, you will be tagged, targeted, tarred and feathered. Um, And we're working for the doctors who are listening to this. We are working on that DEA oversight hearing. Um, And that's our goal. One of our goals for 2021, we need a DEA oversight hearing yesterday. And we're working on it. Um, Tim and Dave, how are we? On questions, um, we're we're doing well. I just wanted to make a statement about that as well, um, because this show we've had many distinguished guests on here covering this subject, uh, including you know Dr. Feldman, uh, Attorney Rod Chapman, uh, doc, uh, Doctor and Attorney Dan Laird, um, and it seems that everybody can agree um, that the doctor-patient relationship is no longer sacred. And it just seems that these blanket policies, and that's what I'll call them, these blanket policies, they cannot, you know, um, they don't cover every situation. And I think it's a lazy way of thinking. I think it's just, it's, it's a very, it's a very, um, it's, it's, it doesn't take a lot of effort to come up with one rule for all people. I mean, it's just, to me, right. it's, it's just not a lot of forethought uh, with that and talking. And, and it seems like it's going away more and more. It seems like it's being attacked more and more. And I do agree with Claudia. There's a lot less interest in uh, health and taking care of people when you're, you're not allowed to do so. So yeah, a very sure. good, very good dialogue here. Uh, I appreciate all of the comments and everybody's very active in the chat. There's not really any specific questions, just people kind of um, stating their situations. Um, well, I got a that, question here uh, from okay. Martha, just real quick. Um, yeah. If anyone in Congress is sympathetic to the pain patient's plight. Yeah. Anybody there, in well, Congress that you know of Beth, that's sympathetic to what the pain community is enduring. Uh, I think you know, I know Bill I, Cassidy, Senator Cassidy has been. Yeah, well, you know, in all honesty, I mean, I, I have seen some people be sympathetic, but I, I have been uh, somewhat disheartened that there's more of a focus on the addiction issue. Um, and so I think 
what you see in Congress kind of reflects more what we see nationally. Um, so we definitely need more advocacy, which was why I was really pleased to be able to give two congressional briefings and raise this issue. But I'm, you know, I, I don't know to what extent there's real impact from those actions. You know, I, I don't know. Well, I'm glad, um, Beth, I'm so glad you took time out of your Saturday afternoon uh, to spend it with um, Tim and Dave and myself. I know you're a busy lady. And um, on behalf of the Don't Punish Pain Rally Organization and the Doctor Patient Forum, thank you for your work. Thank you for your advocacy. Thank you for being a voice at the table um, with the recreation of the CDC guidelines, you know, you're a friend, consider yourself a friend of the family, as the Italians say. Oh, God. Thank you so and, much. Um, we're going to, we're going to wrap it up, Beth. Um, we'd love to have you back on. How can people find you? And, you know, tell us um, about. Yeah. What's, what's, no, thanks for asking. And, you know, Claudia, just thank you so much for um, having me on your great show. And, um, Tim and Dave for, for hosting me and, and allowing me to, you know, just say a few words about who I am and what my philosophies are. And also thank you so much for all of your great advocacy. Would... Um, everything that's happening is so exciting. Um, if anyone wants to learn more, you can visit my website at bestdarnell.com and I have several pages and details there. Excellent. All right, Tim and Dave. Tim, all right. Yeah, right. yeah, we're here. we most certainly are. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Thank, for, thank you, everybody, would, for, in the live show. Jay. I hope that this helps people understand that Beth is not against the movement. Yes, I mean, yes, it's very clear to me, and uh, obviously, people that uh, probably have taken antidote, you know, maybe they've read, you know a headline or maybe read the beginning of something or maybe try to they're trying to um take things out of context maybe they can listen to this and they will find out for themselves your position and your history on this so it's very good to have you on the show thank you so much claudia as always it's a pleasure uh we love having on you we love the uh <laughs> we love having on you and having you on and uh the collaboration is is always a pleasure so everybody enjoy your saturday the show will be posted this week make sure you uh get on there uh can they still get onto the cdc uh portal and uh give their comments or is that closed now oh you know it's a good question. I want to disclose. Um, we we promoted the heck out of that, and then now I don't know if it's on. But um, you know, just don't quit fighting, everybody. Don't give up hope. You know, um, there's people there's people that are that are fighting diligently so you can get what you need uh, to live a happy you know happy pain free life. Thank you. <laughs>